Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As Russia steps up attacks on Ukraine and China flies a spy balloon over the United States, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met to talk about raising the debt ceiling, but no deal is imminent. So as the administration prepares to submit its budget request to Congress on March 9, the outlook for a debt default, much less defense spending, remain unclear as new leaders take over their committee assignments. Despite up to 200,000 dead and wounded, Russia is preparing a major offensive against Ukraine. But after approving M1 tanks for Kiev, Biden won't send F-16 fighters, even as France and other nations make clear they're willing to supply Ukraine with modern air power. The Pentagon says a Chinese spy balloon is stalled over Montana. Uh, Beijing calls it a weather balloon. Uh, Defense leaders have advised against shooting it down, fearing debris could cause injuries. Uh, an argument that strikes me as somewhat absurd, given that it could be punctured and brought down in an uninhabited area. Uh, I figure Montana is probably better than landing over Omaha. America has regained basing access in the Philippines, working with South Korea to better deter Pyongyang and a new uh, India-U.S. emerging tech agreement. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security, and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, uh, welcome back um, to the program. It's a pleasure having you on. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare coverage. Uh, Everybody, thanks very much again uh, for uh, joining us. Michael, um, I apologize uh, to our audience if we start sounding like a broken record, as sometimes we do on this show, but we tend to be ahead of the power curve and try to stay on it. Biden and McCarthy uh, met as GOP uh, members are making clear that they're very comfortable with a debt default. Uh, a friend uh, mocked uh, that the GOP is blackmailing without a cause. Uh, where where are we and what does this mean for defense spending? So you're right. So uh, Speaker McCarthy and President Biden uh, met on Wednesday and it's been reported by both of them as having a, a first good meeting. Uh, no agreements were made. Uh, the only promises that were made was the agreement to keep on talking. Um, McCarthy expressed optimism uh, after the meeting and said that he sees areas where they could find common ground. Uh, But remember, the White House had insisted that they were not going to negotiate over the debt ceiling. So clearly now they are. Uh, I spoke to a member of Congress who spoke to uh, the speaker after the meeting, and this was the first thing that came up in their discussion. And they both agreed to put their best people on it. So Biden's got a team of people working with McCarthy's folks to have this discussion. So that way, Biden and McCarthy could go on uh, to other subject matters. Uh, But look, it's it's early February. We still have a long way to go on this. And you're right. So we're going to sound like a broken record talking about this for a while. We could be talking about this possibly through the fall, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, And there's a lot of outside forces at play here, too. I mean, the RSC, which is uh, one of the largest blocks of Republicans in the House, prepared a presentation this week where they're endorsing uh, budget caps again, you know, a la where we were back with the Budget Control Act. And even though 
McConnell is kind of, um, well, actually, before I say McConnell, I mean, Schumer actually came out uh, with a statement earlier in the week, too, talking about this fight over the debt ceiling and saying we will win. And to me, that's not very smart politics because you don't want to put it in frame it in terms of winners and losers and force the Republicans to put, put their back up even more. Uh, at the end of the day, the American people are the ones who are going to be the winners or losers here, depending on you know how close we get to the brink of default. And McConnell has sidelined himself for now in this discussion, but uh, two dozen of his senators on the Republican side sent a letter to President Biden warning them that they will not support an increase in the debt ceiling without structural changes to U.S. spending. However, the letter does not specify the structural changes that they're asking for. And that's really part of the problem. There's really no proposal from the Republican side. And if you harken back to where we were back in 2011, where we had this debt ceiling fight before, then Speaker Boehner put a bill on the floor to let all the Republicans and Democrats say, everybody offer an idea on cutting spending and let's pass a bill that cuts spending. And we just vote up or down on everybody's amendment on spending cut ideas. And they spent days on this. And at the end of the day, they cut a billion dollars. That's it with a B. That's it. One billion was all they were able to come up with. Um, so now I, I actually spoke to a senior. And the last I checked, it's thirty three trillion. Right. Is exactly. The number that, right? Exactly. And, right. And and the annual budget deficit is well in excess of a trillion. I mean, last year's deficit was one point three trillion. So uh, this really d- didn't. Obviously, it, they, they know this making a dent in this is going to be very hard. And they're really putting themselves in a box as to what they are and aren't going to touch. I talked to a senior congressman yesterday who's part of these discussions, and I said, are you really thinking about uh, extending the debt ceiling up until September and creating this incredible fiscal cliff? And they said, yes, they really are looking at that date because they want to control the date as to when this comes due. They don't want it being controlled by Yellen uh, and the administration. So that you know dovetails what we talked about last week, creating the mother of all fiscal cliffs. And really, right. if they were to do that, ensures there will be no regular order this year because it pushes everything uh, in, into the fall and really will create uh, this sense of crisis uh, the closer we get to that. Um, so and, and then, of course, you know, we have. Um, you know, what that means for defense spending. And, you know, you know, McCarthy, again, uh, last earlier in the week, talked about how Social Security and Medicare are not going to be touched. Uh, those are off the table, but cuts for defense spending are uh, in play. Now, he has since, from what I understand, uh, walked that back a little bit, you know, again, talking about areas that uh, where there's waste that we can eliminate, looking at every dollar and how it's spent. And surprisingly, Chip Roy, you know, the Congress from Texas, who was one of the 20 members who was originally against McCarthy and part of the negotiation behind the scenes of this you know, spending framework, actually came out and also, also said that Medicare and Social Security shouldn't be touched, but the Pentagon budget shouldn't be touched, which was right. really a surprising uh, statement. So, you know, but it also depends on what that really means, because some Republicans in leadership are telling me that maybe they mark defense to the FY23 level, and that's not a cut in defense. But of course, Everybody on, on this, uh, you know, our listening audience knows that that is a cut in defense because it doesn't keep pace with inflation. So that is still very much a moving target. Now, Mike Rogers announced this week because he's uh, he just reorganized the Armed Services Committee. And they are he said that he will authorize as much money as is needed in order to counter China, counter Russia and build up our industrial base. But at the same time, looking to see where they can find savings. So he's going to build a budget that's based on threats. And then he said that he and Adam Smith have talked about this and they both agree on a threat based approach. Now, as this debate goes on, of course, there will be that fight over these so-called woke policies and, of course, what is and isn't a legacy platform and which ones you know, should and should not survive. So uh, we still have a long way to go. But you know, now it looks like you know, our, our worst case scenario on defense, and this will change by the week, is either you know, a year-long CR or they mark to the FY23 level. So it's, we're, we're in a little better shape than I thought we were last week. 
And uh, and uh, this comes as we know we expect 30 billion. The administration asked for 30 billion dollars uh, more, pushing on what could be uh, an easily opening door uh, for some members uh, who want to see that. Although a friend of mine, and I don't mean this as a ding uh, to Chairman Rogers, said uh, the the real mark will be whether he permits uh, you know um, uh, littoral combat ships to be retired. Uh, if he allows that. <laughs> Then there's hope uh, for uh, for the future. Uh, again, not trying to put any pressure on the chairman. I'm just just saying that was an observation uh, made. Um, talk to us a little bit about committee assignments. Uh, right last week, uh, we talked about the uh, House uh, China Select Committee. Uh, it's going to be chaired by Wisconsin Republican Mike Gallagher. It's going to be with uh, Illinois Democrat uh, Raja uh, Krishnamurthy uh, as the ranking member. Two uh, very strong uh, picks, uh, very bipartisan. They've made their voices clear on the whole. Uh, you know whether it is or isn't a Chinese. Uh, balloon uh, uh, going over the United States, one of maybe two balloons going over the United States. Anyway, walk us through who's new, doing what. Um, uh, and then uh, really quickly want to get your take on the whole Tyree Nichols, a very tragic, unfortunate young man who was killed by police officers, but that's actually reinvigorated the entire police debate. And if you want to give us a couple of words on how that connects to defense, because you're always very thoughtful on how you connect these things, uh, would be would be great to get your take on that as well before we move on to the balloon issue. <laughs> okay, well, I know a lot to cover, so I'll be very brief on the committee assignments. We won't go through all the names because they finally have all wrapped up. But you're right. I mean, the Democrats did uh, name uh, Congressman uh, Krishna Morthy uh, from Illinois as their ranking Democrat. And that was really actually, I think, a, a very good pick. I mean, at first, a lot of people were like, who's that? Right. But uh, it shows me the Democrats are taking this uh, select committee very seriously. Uh, he's somebody who's already worked with Mike Gallagher. Uh, he is the co-sponsor of Mike Gallagher's bill to ban TikTok, uh, for example. Um, you mentioned the balloon. The two of them already put out a joint statement on that um, last night. So I think the China committee is off to a good start. I think that also the people that they put on the committee on the Democratic side are very uh, thoughtful folks. Several folks from Armed Services, for example, like Andy Kim uh, and Mikey Sherrill uh, right. and Seth Moulton were also put on the committee. So uh, I think that's that's a ray of hope there. Uh, the Senate has now done their organization, too. Uh, now they have their new subcommittee chairs on Armed Services. A lot of changes there. Uh, now Elizabeth Warren is now a subcommittee chair on, on Armed Services. She has the Personnel Subcommittee. Uh, that should make for some interesting uh, some fights between her and her Republican counterpart on the uh, House side and, and um, Jim Banks. Uh, but then um, Maisie Hirono from Hawaii is now the readiness chair. Tim Kaine is now the Sea Power chair. Uh, Kristen Gillibrand now chairs the Emerging Threats subcommittee. Uh, Mark Kelly chairs the Air Land subcommittee, which is a great fit for his state of Arizona with the things he's got going on there. And the only two that stay the same with Joe Manchin stays as the Cyber subcommittee chair. And uh, Angus Ching stays at uh, Strategic Forces. Now, um, you grow up a really good point, right? I mean, police reform is now back in the news again. Um, after you know the tragic uh, death of Tyree Nichols, and 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 it should be you know understandably so. I mean, I think this is putting the spotlight on that this is a this is a huge problem for this country uh, and a huge policing problem with uh, the culture of policing in this country. And you know the, the Congressional Black Caucus is being very aggressive on this, and there's a lot of national security leaders in the Congressional Black Caucus, folks on armed services, uh, intelligence, uh, foreign affairs, and in the leadership, and they're really pressing on Joe Biden. Uh, and Kamala Harris to make sure that this is mentioned in the State of the Union address next week uh, on Tuesday. So that remains to be seen. Uh, and they do want to continue to push legislation using the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act a as a framework. Now, that, as you know, did not go anywhere last year. And that was when the Democrats were in charge of everything. This year, it's going to be even harder. So if anything is going to pass, it's going to have to be something that's scaled back. But the implications for defense 
is that this is something that is now going to take up bandwidth and it should be taking up bandwidth, right? I think there are things that, that the House and Senate are working on now that shouldn't be taking up bandwidth. For example, you know, removing Ilan Omar from her committees uh, yesterday and, you know, a resolution denouncing socialism, I don't think it really moves the needle for the American people, but this is something that does and will take time away from negotiating a budget deal and also negotiating uh, issues around, around the debt ceiling. I, I, I have to say that sent, sends, I think, to the world, uh, you know, just like um, having uh, Raja uh, Krishna uh, Murthy uh, as a ranking member, I think it sends a very bad signal to, uh, you know, wh- whether or not you agree or disagree with her politics. Uh, she does ask some very tough questions, some very uncomfortable questions, uh, but also indicates to the rest of the world that, you know, you, you can be an immigrant, uh, a Muslim woman serving in Congress and, and, uh, you know, not somehow be penalized for it because I don't believe anything that she's that she's done. I mean, she has been ostracized for some of her statements. She's apologized for them. She voted for uh, an Israel resolution, um, I think, yesterday or something like that, uh, and doesn't really approach to what Paul Gosar and some of these other guys were doing about putting putting crosshairs literally on other members of Congress. I mean, I, I think it's just uh, there's it's absurd. Um, uh, thanks very much, Michael. I'm, we're going to move on to hit the big balloon issue. As a friend of mine joked, uh, now we have a balloon gap, right? We had a missile gap. We now have a balloon gap. Uh, it's both funny and it's not funny. Normally, we start uh, with you, Jim. We're going to start with Patrick. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to be patient. And Patrick uh, comes uh, comes up front, um, you know, to sort of get your sense on, on what the Chinese are trying to accomplish by doing this uh, and doing it now, if it is Chinese, right? I mean, there's but Beijing is saying it's not them, although we have evidence that the Chinese have done this before and we've kept our mouth shuts uh, about it. Uh, they're doing it just before the Blinken visit. Um, we've, uh, as I said, have since learned that not only has this happened before, but actually as, as of this morning, there might be a second balloon. Um, Beijing says it's investigating, urges everybody to stay calm. Okay, but not sure how calm they'd be if we were flying surveillance balloons over China. Uh, and I think another problem is that each time we've done nothing just empowers somebody to take more risk. We saw that uh, with Putin. Uh, Patrick, what, what's the message Beijing is trying to send and why are they doing this now? And again, uh, you know, these could be research balloons, right? We don't know. They're saying it's meteorological. Then again, the U-2 was meteorological as well, right? At least that's what we said. It's a weather plane that was shot down in 1960. Vago, my judgment, based on everything we know right now, is that the Chinese have uh, pursued a limited risk intelligence and political uh, psychological operation uh, on U.S. airspace. And the basic message is this. um, You are going to strengthen your military and your alliances in our sphere of influence. Well, we're going to make sure that you feel vulnerable, that you and your allies feel vulnerable. I think that is really at the heart of, of what the Chinese are doing. And so what's my evidence for this? Well, one, we do know um, uh, uh, scientifically that this balloon was launched from central uh, China. Uh, that's already been shown by top meteorologists. Um, secondly, it's flying uh, at a time, as you say, when we've had uh, a series of toughening of the U.S. defense architecture and policies in the region. Um, everything from General Minahan's uh, you know, transcom commander's memo saying that his gut tells them we're going to go to war in 2025 over Taiwan to the transformation of the US-Japan alliance and Japan's uh, offensive capabilities being added, 
to the strengthening of the U.S.-ROK alliance, to these new bases in the Philippines, and finally with Secretary Blinken about to land in Beijing uh, on Monday uh, to talk about guardrails in the relationship. So you can see what the Chinese are doing here. They're um, mostly trying to uh, put the Biden administration into a box and to put U.S. allies uh, on their back heels saying, don't cooperate too much with the U.S. They could cause war in your front yard, um, even if it's America's backyard. Uh, and and also Biden administration, don't you want to throttle back uh, and appease uh, China? We're, after all, being uh, uh, nicer about trade with Australia and talking about uh, accommodation. So uh, take your uh, arms and, and go back home, essentially. Right. Now, the U.S. is not going to do that. They know that. Um, so this is a part of a continuation of a negotiation, in effect, a strategic negotiation over what are going to be the rules of the road between these two big powers. What we do know also is that China has been engaged in a series of increasingly provocative air and sea incidents around China's periphery. So the balloon is a much more limited risk opportunity for the Chinese to test American response, gather some intelligence that may be not being gained from low Earth orbit satellites, and, and really psychologically give this jolt to the Americans. Um, I uh, should uh, note uh, that Michael brings to our attention that Bloomberg is reporting the Biden administration is postponing Blinken's trip uh, to Beijing because of the balloon incident. And it's very reminiscent of 1960, right, uh, when uh, Eisenhower was looking forward to his summit with Khrushchev. Uh, the U-2 uh, was shot down in May 1960. We called it a, a weather plane. They showed that it was a spy plane. And then the summit uh, was uh, off, uh, only to uh, be rekindled when when Khrushchev beat the daylights out of uh, a young John Kennedy when they uh, met. Um, Can I just talk about that four power yeah, of summit? Course. Go ahead. Eisenhower, Eisenhower was going to Paris four power summit with Khrushchev. The U two incident was blamed by many as a sabotage from the right uh, right wing of America, uh, who didn't want to see uh, friendship or talks or détente between the U S and the Soviet Union. That's false. This was routine. Uh, intelligence surveillance uh, mission that Eisenhower had approved long before then. Same thing here. This Chinese have approved this. I mean, I can't prove it now, but, but they must surely approve this at the highest level. Um, and so it's 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 pragmatic to not go to Beijing right now for diplomacy while we figure out what is an effectively sharp response on our terms at our time. Uh, Dove, uh, I want to uh, bring you into this, right? Um, there are a multiplicity uh, of um, arguments going on here, right? Uh, you know, so DOD is saying the Chinese aren't really going to get anything uh, from these that they wouldn't get from satellites. Although, you know, we don't know exactly what packages, uh, electronic listening packages, or even, um, you know, if it's if it's um, you know the dispensing uh, uh, payloads uh, as it does this, whether on Beijing or on Moscow's uh, behalf. Um, shooting it down over Montana, maybe, may, you know, and then the concern is, well, if we shoot it down, it'll you know, damage property and, and hurt people, you know, okay. But in the, at the end of the day, it's still a violation of, of American uh, sovereignty. W what's your sense on how best to handle this situation? I mean, I joked with a friend of mine yesterday, we should shoot it down. Either Blinken shouldn't go or we shoot it down and Blinken returns the wreckage and says, here, I'm sorry, I hate to re-gift, but uh, we found this. Uh, and thought you'd like it back. I mean, what's what's the right way for us uh, to be responding, the administration to be responding to this? Look, a couple of things. First, I think the Chinese bet that um, they could provoke us and Blinken would come anyway, um, that the administration would, would essentially give in. So 
telling Blinken not to go was the right move. That's for sure. I think we could we could bring that balloon down. And it's not a matter of shooting it down. We could have hooked the balloon onto uh, one of our slower moving aircraft, bring it down over the ocean, and then we have ways of getting onto it and then seeing exactly what it's got. I don't know why we're not doing that. Um, maybe we still will. Um, but this is, you know, this is, again, evidence. This administration does not know how to react quickly. I think pulling Blinken was a quick reaction, and I was surprised they, they've done it, uh, the right thing to do. But I think they could bring this balloon down. Uh, after all, balloons are awfully slow moving. Uh, and then what would the Chinese say? Um, we have to definitely make it clear to them that we're just not going to let them push us around or try to embarrass us. It's not so much pushing us around. It's to embarrass us and embarrassing us so that they send a message to all their neighbors. And Patrick can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is also messaging to all their neighbors in East and Southeast Asia that the United States isn't. A, I don't know that we're a paper tiger the way Mao called us, but that we're not 10 feet tall. I think that's part of this. Um, I uh, uh, I think uh, there is uh, there is a lot of merit to that. I mean, it's a very high altitude balloon. That's uh, the challenge apparently on on where it's flying. But then again, F twenty twos and other airplanes can get that high. I don't know what the towing capacity of an F twenty two is, but you know, if you put a couple of holes in that balloon, it's a large balloon. It's about the size of three school buses, uh, three buses in diameter. You know, the question is at that point it starts to descend, and then you could you could figure out where it drops, and hopefully it drops slow enough for you to uh, uh, do something with it. Um, now, all, I'm saying, all I'm saying is that this thing is doable, and that we can be very creative if we want it to be, and we still might be. But again, the reaction is too damn slow. Um, well, and they've known about this, right? And we've known about this in the past. That I think is what's bristling is that past administrations have dealt with this also and not disclosed it. So we've at least disclosed it now. Uh, but uh, ultimately, it's important to get to the bottom of it and enforce, uh, uh, you know, use this as a signal. Uh, Jim, uh, I want to get your quick take uh, on this because we're going to go, obviously, and I want to get your views on F-16s and the uh, Russian uh, offensive uh, that's brewing, but want to get your sense on this. And then, Michael, sort of where are most members of Congress uh, on this? Because my sense is from a bipartisan perspective, as you mentioned, uh, both, uh, you know, Gallagher uh, and uh, and his ranking member are both on the same page on this, and other members have made their voices clear on this as well. But uh, go ahead, Jim. Well, I think Patrick and Dove uh, said it perfectly. I agree with everything that they're saying. Uh, and we have to react. We have to uh, not make the mistakes that we've made with Putin in the past by just giving them a pass and moving on and saying, you know, that's okay, whatever, you know, it's not going to matter much to us. We're going to visit Beijing or whatever. We have to have a better reaction and it's got to be quicker. I, I agree with them both. I will say just to finish this is that, you know, if you're Putin and you're sitting in the Kremlin watching this, anything to distract the U.S. Uh, from Ukraine or to cause division in the Congress where the, the uh, China folks will stand up and go, you see, it's all about China. Um, anything to, to cause uh, Washington to lose its focus when it comes to Ukraine, he loves. Uh, and so I'm sure he's sitting back. He sent a, a telegram of congratulations to Beijing and said, well done, keep it up. And, uh, and there you go. So I think we have to stay focused as well on not just China, but on Russia and make sure that Putin doesn't get what he wants, which is this distraction uh, from the mission at hand. 
Uh, I, I always uh, like, right. I mean, all of these are connected in the international ecosystem. And so not acting on one sends a signal uh, to the, uh, to the other. And I understand we always want to be prudent. We always want to be the adult in the room, but you know, I would point out hundreds of American airmen died uh, during the cold war on reconnaissance missions in and around uh, Russia. Uh, and, you know, if, if this had been another era, we would have just shot the thing down or figured out how to capture it. And it we, would have been over quickly. Yep. We do need to capture that. As Deb was saying, we've got to exploit this, uh, this balloon and see what it's been doing, what it's capable of, et cetera. We need to do that. If we just let it fly away, we're missing an opportunity. I'm hoping that the plans are in place to try to bring it down and take a look at what's inside. Uh, I, I think that the, you know, I mean, this is another thing where, uh, you know, the administration asks for options and then the military is always providing something incredibly cautious. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that even dubbish friends of mine are like, what the hell is that about? Uh, anyway, um, uh, Michael, let me uh, get your take on this because there's so much more that we need uh, to discuss uh, other than the balloon, the balloon gap. But how, how are members responding? What is it they want to get from the White House? What, the, what do they want to see from the White House? Well, you know, look, this is an evolving situation, right? Because this came to everybody's attention last night and Congress is now out of town. Uh, so, look, McCarthy came out strong on this, uh, calling for a briefing of the Gang of Eight. You know, again, the lawmakers responsible for reviewing intelligence, both on the committee and, and leadership. And the administration responded immediately. And uh, from what I understand, the briefing has already happened uh, with the staff of the Gang of Eight because the members themselves uh, are not here. Uh, of course, we're hearing a lot from the Montana senators and, and, represent, and, and representatives since it's uh, their state that the balloon is hovering over. Um, and, you know, Senator Daines, uh, who's on defense appropriations, you know, came out saying he's very alarmed uh, by this balloon and how it would have the ability to infiltrate our airspace. Uh, Ryan Zinke, who now is also on the Appropriations Committee, uh, wants us to, to shoot it down. Uh, the former president is out there tweeting that we should be shooting down uh, the uh, the balloon. Uh, Senator Wicker, you know, who's the ranking Republican on uh, the Armed Services Committee, also wants a, you know a full accounting uh, as to what happened. And I, I and I think you know, look, uh, the Democrats and Republicans are really on the same page on this, as we've seen from the joint statement uh, from coming from the China Select Committee already uh, that people uh, uh, we're not going to tolerate the fact that they're violating our airspace. Uh, just to figure out what the appropriate response is. And I do agree with what you said earlier that I think it's the right move that the Biden administration did delay uh, Blinken's trip. So, uh, you know, it remains to be seen from there. And, and it's also bringing to light, you know, some, uh, some issues with our capabilities. I mean, I, I read that the, the F-22 has the ability to get to those heights of 50,000 feet where some of our other aircraft do not. And there is a discussion now about retiring the F-22 and maybe we'll give that some second thought when we think about, you know, with different capabilities that we're going to need uh, when it comes to the fight with China. Um, and and it's uh, and the retirement of them are of course the 33 airplanes right it's not the entire F22 force but it's those uh, uh, earlier model airplanes uh, it's a that, it's a sli- it's a slippery slope it's a slippery slope that's how I knew you were going to say that well well said well said you're very rehearsed uh, on some of these messages hang on a second uh, hey, Fargo we, uh, can I just make one yeah, point uh, about go ahead Patrick I think the intelligence benefit to the Chinese right now on this balloon versus the political warfare benefit which is the main goal. Uh, is our response. And I think we should look back at December 26th and the North Koreans sending the drone over ROK airspace. This is a less technologically risky way to test our response to see whether we're vulnerable in these areas. 
um, and to learn intelligence that way. Therefore, we should shoot the plane. We should shoot or capture the balloon. But I suspect we won't find so much technology on it because they don't want to risk that technology. They really want to test our response and then psychologically wound us and, and hurt, as Dove said, our allies will to join us against uh, China's aggression. Look, it's astonishing to me. NORAD has tracked this. It made it all the way across Canada and it entered American airspace and was sort of loitering when we uh, or, or, you know, I mean, look, it's, it's not hovering. It's a balloon, although it would be interesting to see if it has capabilities, you know, navigational capabilities that might be somewhat more sophisticated. Um, I'm, we're going to go to the Ukraine war. We've got a lot more to cover uh, in uh, the time we have. So I'm going to uh, ask for a little bit of a, a lightning round as we go forward. But first, check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, sponsored by HII. Uh, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new Air Power podcast hosted by GE Aerospace and co-hosted by our contributing editor, JJ Gertler, and yours uh, truly. Uh, Jim, I want to uh, bring you uh, into this discussion. President Biden, right after having said reluctantly yes uh, to M1 tanks in order to clear leopards uh, from Germany and other uh, leopard operators, uh, has said no to the F-16. Uh, on our Air Power podcast yesterday, uh, retired United States Air Force uh, Lieutenant General uh, Gus Guastella, uh, who was an F-16 driver, said that the you know, he was former director of operations uh, for the Air Force and is now a, a senior uh, fellow at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, uh, said the F-16 might not be the right plane for the Ukrainians at this moment, that Mirages and Gripens might be a better choice. France hasn't ruled out sending Mirages. Sweden is interested in sending Gripens. Other uh, F-16 operators like the Dutch are willing to send their planes over. Like everything else, we say no, 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 only to stay start saying yes, 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 uh, fears that Ukraine will use these to attack the Russians or misplaced. They haven't used any of our weapons to attack Russia. They've attached, attacked Russia with their own uh, innovative use of their own uh, systems. And Putin is making clear he's going to be victorious, irrespective of the cost and the casualty figures uh, su- su- suggest that. The, well, I want to well, get beyond. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, well, I wanted to say I wanted to get beyond sort of the jet issue and sort of be like, where are we? Is this offensive coming sooner than we expected? And are the Russians actually timing this out right? The tanks aren't going to get there in time. The armored vehicles won't be there in time. And so actually the time for me to strike is now when the Ukrainians really are the weakest. Well, I think that's exactly right. I think uh, they're not going to wait for the tanks to arrive, for the Abrams to arrive you know, for Ukraine to get stronger there, if anything, uh, you know, this, certainly this offensive has been planned. They've been pulling in a lot of manpower, untrained uh, as they are. Uh, and so uh, I think if anything, um, this has speeded up their planning so that they can they can begin to shape the battlefield and, and maybe begin to push a bit uh, before the Leopard 2s get there. And I think it'll be the Leopard 2s will be getting there first. So so that's, that's, uh, that's, I'm sure, affecting the timing. But I think just to start off to say, we really are going to be in for six, eight months of just bloody, brutal fighting. You can see it developing right now. This reminds me very much of what the Soviets did at the end of World War II. Dove and I talked about that a few uh, weeks ago. This is just something that uh, it's, it's going to be uh, heavy casualties on both sides, casualties that the Russians can absorb easier than Ukraine can. Uh, and so I think as uh, the West, as we watch this, it's gonna be uh, just a, a horrible situation that calls for us to really be strong for Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, and, and you're right, it is beginning. 
uh, on the in, in terms of the aircraft, just to say, I think the idea all along had been uh, that we do need to have this, this as a first choice, the former Soviet aircraft. They know how to fly that. They've got spare parts, uh, and there is a lot of spare parts for that among the Allies who used to used to be in the Warsaw Pact. So um, that I think had been the first choice. With the idea that you would use F-16s at the backfill, say for the Poles or others who would give up uh, their former Soviet aircraft backfilled by the F-16. Uh, of course, there's a lot of detail that have to be worked out for a swap like that. But uh, but I think that was some of the thinking. I think what what just to just to talk about the aircraft situation for a second, and I not I'm not an F-16 driver, uh, but I I would say though that there's there are more spare parts, there's more available aircraft among the Allies, uh, more opportunities for training, et cetera, for the F-16 than for a Mirage or a Gripen. I like Mirage, I like Gripen, but I think in a situation like this with Ukraine, there needs to be a pretty solid uh, maintenance uh, capability, uh, spare parts base. Uh, you know, um, uh, I will say depot level maintenance, if you will, or or something that to help the uh, to help Ukraine should they get F-16s. Um, I think there's more support for that than there would be for those other aircraft. So I wanted to throw that on the table. But just to, um, what, one of, uh, just uh, briefly to interrupt. Uh, yeah. But I mean, the reason Mirage and and, and Gripen uh, sort of surface is that they were designed to be conscript supportable and that the F-16 really does need a technical sophistication like the M1 tank does, like everything yeah. we build. Whereas, uh, you know, the, 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 the Gripen and Mirage were engineered to be um, more easily sustained in sort of austere conditions. So that was the thinking is that these jets really are designed to be more easily sustained and supported, even well, though they would require, you know, specialized training like any modern uh, combat aircraft. Anyway, I just no, wanted to point that out. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I And I understand that. Uh, but uh, I think the, the maintenance, I think that Ukraine has shown that uh, their maintainers can pretty quickly understand how to maintain these more sophisticated systems. So, so you're right, Mirage and Gripen might be easier, but, but to me, it's all about spare parts and logistics for that. And there's a lot more of that uh, out in Europe among the allies and in the US for an F-16 than there would be for a, a Gripen uh, particularly or a Mirage. I think, I'm not so sure how deep the spare parts base is for the, for the Gripen. I I yeah, I, want, I wanted to bring you in now, Dove, because you wrote a great piece, Britain Remains a Major Military Power, but for how long in the wake of a statement by an American general that uh, the Brits uh, aren't really a land power anymore? I don't think that's fair because in every case, Britain has led opening the door for stingers, opening the door for anti-tank weapons, sending airplanes uh, right in the form of rescue helicopters, clearing the way, being leading on tanks and, and everything else, even though with U.S. support, given that some of these have U.S. componentry in them. But talk to us a little bit about where you think this is going and particularly Britain's Britain's role and the sense now in Washington that, um, you know, Britain may not be as important an ally in part because of the, the capabilities it has left after years of reducing spending on military. Well, first of all, let me just uh, add what Jim just said. Um, it's not just a matter of uh, the spare parts, which is absolutely right. But it, the entire integrated logistics system, if you bring in both Swedish and French aircraft, now you've got two separate logistics systems, which really doesn't work very well. And the argument about F-16s being more sophisticated sure sounds like the argument about F-1, uh, M-1s being very sophisticated. 
which F-16s are we talking about? There are lots and lots of versions of F-16s. This, again, is another example of the, the administration simply dragging its heels. It, they're going to come around and send them. I'm convinced of that. But this is how they operate. On the question of Britain, as it happened sometime yesterday, the minister for, secure, for veterans affairs in the UK went after uh, the defense secretary for saying anything negative about the British military budget. The, clearly, the, the, the cabinet is divided over how much to spend on uh, defense. Uh, Sunak, the prime minister, seems to be not terribly interested. He comes from a, a financial background. He doesn't seem to be into any of these issues at all. He says the right things, but he just doesn't do them. They're going to be issuing their latest uh, projections on national security in March. And it'll be very interesting to see what they do. But to write off the Brits, I started my article by pointing out that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs under uh, Nixon, Ford and Carter, George Brown, said that the Brits were only good for marching bands. And guess what? They won the Falklands. They were with us in both Iraq wars. They were with us in Afghanistan. They're supplying the Ukrainians. I wouldn't write the Brits out as quickly as some people might do. I, I would agree with you uh, on that. And the country uh, remains uh, a very, very important ally and partner. But I would point out that Americans have a tendency of forgetting how shrunken its allies, uh, militaries have gotten in the wake of the costs of Iraq and Afghanistan. So instead of recapitalizing, each of these services shrank to do urgent operational requirements, sideline tanks, focused more on counterinsurgency capabilities, bought on manned systems. Uh, and and for small militaries, having an incessant presence over the course of two decades in Iraq and Afghanistan was an, was was a cost. Um, and so when folks look at the French Air Force or the Royal Air Force or the French Army or the German Army and the availability of equipment, it's startling. As a French general told me, you know, and it was only, you know, 18 Caesars are going. He's like, look, those are half of our Caesars. So it, it's it's not like we're sort of uh, not being generous. It's just we don't have the kind of stocks and inventories you guys have. Oh, they um, have a problem the Brits are facing. They got out of Europe. Their economy is not doing well. They are the worst of big economies other than Mexico, if you believe. Um, they're not growing. They have strikes all over the place. That makes it even harder to put money into defense. So um, it's, it's clear that this is going to be a major debate literally on the last minute when that paper is in. Indeed, and of course, uh, exacerbated, unfortunately, by the whole Brexit uh, drama. Um, we've, uh, but Patrick, um, I want to go to uh, all that was accomplished in Asia. Uh, very, very important. Uh, you said last week, uh, Secretary Austin would visit Seoul and Manila. U.S. Uh, has uh, struck important agreements uh, in Seoul as well as in Manila. The last one is particularly critical because America um, was uh, kicked out of the Philippines uh, for having behaved badly and and. Uh, perception by Filipinos that the colonial power was uh, treating them badly. Uh, growing uh, understanding how important the uh, security is to both countries. We want to be more forward. Um, we had greater hopes about where Vietnam was going to go. Those hopes have not materialized the way that we hoped that they would. Um, anyway, walk us through where we are right now, how important these agreements are, what Jens Stoltenberg achieved, and how do we actually get it right with Manila this time? It was a startling week, uh, a very good week for how U.S. allies and partners are responding to belligerents uh, out of Moscow, uh, but also out of Beijing. 
Um, and so NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg in Seoul, in Tokyo, highlighting the interconnectedness between security in, in Europe and Asia, uh, and really giving Seoul and Tokyo a voice in uh, European security and asking for their support, at the same time pledging some NATO support uh, for their security in Asia. Very important. But then the Secretary of Defense's trip, he reassured our South Korean ally that extended deterrence is alive and well. Um, but we're committed to these near-continuous joint exercises, and we saw some of them this week ongoing on stealth aircraft and bombers. Uh, we're also committed to a tabletop nuclear scenario exercise, uh, which will begin later this month, actually, in the U.S. Um, but most importantly there, the question mark remains, President Yoon of South Korea uh, is under the gun. He wants a bigger role in the extended deterrence question. And so he's going to be holding the Americans' feet to the fire over this next year of discussions about extended deterrence to see how much of a role he can get out of the U.S. That was his uh, latent threat for developing a nuclear weapon uh, about, about a month ago, uh, I think was related to that kind of negotiation. Uh, the big win this week, though, was Secretary of Defense Austin's trip to uh, the Philippines. Um, you know, this is he's two for two on the Philippines uh, in, in big things, right? Uh, he uh, was able to renew the Visiting Forces Agreement when it seemed to be in jeopardy under Rodrigo Duterte uh, in 2021. And now he's really found prime real estate that is astride the South China Sea, but also uh, the Philippine Sea adjacent to the Bashi Channel, the waters between Taiwan and the Philippines. That was the real estate that Duterte would not give the United States under their 2014 EDCA, their Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement uh, Accord. Um, but now, Bongbong Marcos, who wants strong economic growth, and he's getting it in the Philippines, uh, is fixated on the national goal of protecting Philippine sovereignty. And he's giving the U.S. the kind of access that they've been asking for. So this is critically important to have access in northern Luzon, in Palawan, along the South China Sea, uh, where we didn't have that access. And that's a big win for the U.S. and for the U.S.-Philippine alliance. Talk to us uh, a little bit about what Jens uh, Stoltenberg uh, achieved and also the new U.S.-India uh, uh, Emerging Technologies uh, Initiative. Well, again, I think uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg made a, a very good impression in Japan and Korea. Um, I'm not sure it was as concrete in terms of getting uh, support for more arms to Ukraine, but indirectly, um, uh, President Yoon uh, in South Korea said he's not going to close the door on arms because right now South Korea says we only have peaceful purposes for our defense exports. Uh, so they've only been indirectly uh, sending arms to Ukraine by basically selling arms to Poland and to European countries. Um, but they're going to be more inclined, I think, going forward, uh, if this war goes forward uh, and is protracted, to provide arms. And I think even Japan was willing to think about uh, especially non-kinetic arms uh, in support of Ukraine. So there's there's a, a, a good reservoir of support now in our key Asian allies for a, a protracted conflict in Europe while they continue to build up and worry about deterrence in Asia. And on that... Um, India, which, as you'd mentioned at the beginning, uh, Vago, has uh, disappointed in some ways. Um, yet this week, we saw a transformational agreement on an initiative, really a series of initiatives, uh, on critical and emerging technologies. So an AI, quantum, 5G, chips, uh, and a new mechanism to facilitate joint, joint weapons production. Now, I know we've seen these kind of statements before. Um, so when Ajit Doval visited the White House and Jake Sullivan said, you know, this is 
a strategic bet on India, that they are making a geopolitical reorientation. Um, I think he's right because technology has been at the heart of the U.S.-Indian cooperation. It is, it is really what drives uh, India's interests because they really want to catch up with China and they need the technology. So this is an important reorientation. Uh, and it just shows you that uh, there is a reorientation of our allies and partners across the Indo-Pacific. And it's one that I'm going to be discussing with Eli Ratner uh, next Thursday, in fact, at Hudson Institute, as we talk about the emerging architecture in this region. Uh, Dove, I want to ask you uh, just to give us sort of an uh, Israel uh, update. Uh, Antony Blinken obviously visited uh, and met with uh, Bibi Netanyahu and senior leadership. He also uh, visited uh, the Palestinian uh, Authority. There were uh, nearly 200 Jewish American uh, leaders uh, who uh, signed uh, uh, an open letter uh, to Israel on a bipartisan uh, basis and, and representative of, of American Jewry that's increasingly uncomfortable with uh, the, the right-wing orthodox tilt of the government uh, in Jerusalem. Kind of walk us, walk us through what was achieved where BB is, how the and whether the letter really changes anything ultimately on the course of, um, you know, the, the the course the Netanyahu government is on. And if you want to talk about the attacks on uh, Iran as well, by the way, you're you're welcome to do that. Which uh, unfortunately may not have achieved what was um, hoped. Let's put it that way. In this case, well, let me start with the the letter. It was uh, I think 179. And what's interesting about the letter is not that it was across religious streams, which it was, but you had people whom I know personally signing that letter who are quite right-wing generally on Israeli issues. And, it, and it's simply telling Netanyahu, this is a bridge too far. It's both about the divisions in Israel, it's about the, the, the treatment of, of Palestinians and uh, Israeli Arabs, it's about the split between Israelis and, and the, the diaspora, as it's called, especially the American Jewish community uh, on religious issues. And it's about the Supreme Court mess. And on that one, I think it's very important to note that some major Israeli high tech companies have moved out of Israel, too, as far as I know so far. And Netanyahu made a statement to the effect that, well, it's OK because uh, J.P. Morgan and other leading financial uh, uh, institutions are still ready to invest in Israel. And J.P. Morgan immediate, virtually immediately responded with a statement saying that Israel was, would be similar to Poland. Poland's had its credit rating downgraded. That would happen to Israel and it would lose investment. So Netanyahu is starting to feel the squeeze not just from Tony Blinken and the American government, but from the American Jewish community and from the investment community, which could really undermine Israel's economy. So where he'll go with this, remember, this is all, as far as I'm concerned, it's all about him staying out of jail. Um, whether at some point he'll think about the welfare of his country and the welfare of, of Jews around the world who care about his country, um, that's an open question. On the attack, the drone attack, on the one hand, it showed once again the power of Israeli intelligence. But as you say, it, you, know, you can take out one facility, one Iranian facility, and there's so many others left. The real message there, though, is something that a lot of people deliberately ignored, which is in many ways the biggest threat to Israel and to the region, the Saudis, the Bahrainis, and others 
is the missile threat. That's what they were going after here. And that's right. a major match. And so, and, and again, you know, Netanyahu constantly beats the Iranian drum because he figures that's how he gets more support uh, placed to his right wing base. But which drum exactly? It's not necessarily the nuclear drum. It's the missile drum that and the support for the kind for the likes of Hezbollah. That's the real problem. I think another important message was the Mossad staged this attack from inside Iran. These short range quadcopters were launched uh, from inside Iran. And if you were uh, an Iranian leader, that's a very powerful message that we can operate with impunity in the wake of the um, you know, automated gun attack on uh, the Iranian nuclear scientist as well, which also sent a powerful signal, right? I mean, that was a one ton. <laughs> that, was, that was not a, a pocket device uh, that was uh, shipped into the country for the purpose. And I think there was powerful messaging there as well. There's a connection here between what the Israelis are getting away with inside Iran and the demonstrations and the opposition to the government. Not all Iranians are anti-Israel by any imagination. And perhaps one way for them to get back at the Ayatollahs is to let the Israelis embed. Before we go, I, I meant to say this earlier, the, the title of the resolution that Omar supported is called Recognizing Israel as America's Legitimate and Democratic Ally and Condemning Anti-Semitism. It didn't change the Republicans' view, but it's kind of interesting that she was willing to sign on to that. Indeed. Um, everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Terrific conversation as always. Uh, hope you guys have a terrific day, a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.